0: I have this long-standing interest in fictional brands and imaginary products, or vice versa, Um, and I have collected examples over the years as a journalist.
1: Rob Walker, no relation, is mostly known for his writings about consumer culture and product design, but he's also one of the world's leading experts on imaginary products, significant objects, and fake brands. He's just organized a show at the Apex Gallery in Tribeca. It's called As Real As It Gets, Rob was in town for the opening night and he gave me a personal tour
0: one of the first things that I wrote about as a journalist that got me interested in this was um, there's a pro- there's a movie called idiocracy okay and in that movie there's a satirical product called Brondo and idiocracy is a really withering satire of the idiotic future of America and how bad it's going to end up being and the product in the movie Brondo uh, is kind of a heightened version of you know energy drink. it's got electrolytes and it's as you sit there watching the movie you're just cracking up at what idiots these people are for swallowing this stupid product on every level right swallowing on every level and um it turned out that there was a guy in san francisco called pete hotlett who had founded a company called omni consumer products omni consumer products itself being a name pinched from the movie robocop Um, and he was producing actual Brondo. he thought like it would be funny or interesting or i don't know what he was thinking to actually have this available to buy. And so what does it mean to be able to actually buy a product that was created to satirize people buying stupid products? So I was interested in that, and I started collecting other examples um, of that and related things, basically stuff where people are using this language of branding and products and consumer culture for reasons of their own you know, to express other ideas, to get at other things. They've sort of recognized that you can make an oil painting about something or you can have a brand about something, right? Um, Which is something that marketers sort of know, but they're not doing it for reasons of pure creativity. And in this show, you're seeing a lot of examples of people doing it for pure creativity and sort of joy.
1: Let's start then. So why don't don't you uh, just sort of walk us through uh, some of the things that we have going on here. So, and here we have um, two
0: examples Sort of together of um, stuff that has uh, that originated as fictional products that became actually available on the marketplace. The first example is two things from The Simpsons. Surely you've seen The Simpsons and you have encountered Krusty O's and Buzz Cola. their satirical little parodies of um, you know gross sugary cereal, you know with worms in it in that case, and then Buzz, their kind of uh, Red Bull slash Jolt Cola parody. Well, when The Simpsons movie came out, um, they took over a bunch of 7-Elevens and made them over into Quickie Marts from the show and stocked them with manufactured products from the show. Now, of course, that's a marketing stunt. But on the other hand, it's a marketing stunt involving things satirizing marketing, and people rushed out to buy them. And someone was asking me about this and sort of saying, who gets the last laugh in that situation? And I, I really have no
1: idea. I, and that's why it's here. Um, so yeah, but you've, you've thought about this a lot. This clearly seems like the, the original point of entry for you when you were talking about it earlier, about this fascination with these fictional products, like from the one from Idiocracy becoming real. And it does, you know, OK, there's the issue of who gets the last laugh, but there's also this sort of back and forth rep- you know, sort of snake eating its own tail, maybe?
0: Well, I think it goes back to, um, you know, my interest in ambiguity and also my interest in brands and marketing as as um, a medium, as a medium that can be not just parodied and subverted, which I think we're pretty familiar with and sort of attacked, but that can also be um, appropriated and used for whatever ends you want, because it's a medium that we're all, it's a a visual and verbal language and grammar that everyone understands. It's the most sort of universal set of codes. Like you, you, even if you've never heard of, I mean, you just know that this box of crustios is, um, you know, kind of undermining something and pushing something, and it's funny on its own. And I have to say that my other criteria about stuff like this is I felt like it had to be intrinsically entertaining in some way. Like, I don't think you need to have a lot of references to lead you up to being amused by crustios. O's. is just funny. So what harm can that do, having that in the show?
1: Okay, but you know, here's a few other ones. There's the Stay puffed Marshmallows from uh, the Ghostbusters... There's the one you were just talking about, Brondo, and uh, 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 Fight Club, Bars. Yeah, and uh,
0: Sex Panther, which is from the movie um, Anchorman. Yeah. And the slogan for Sex Panther, I believe, is uh, 70% of the time works every time, something along those lines. So this is another sort of funny product. That's, so this, this is all Pete Hotlet stuff. This is the offerings of omni-consumer products. And he's the guy who is interested in this idea of um, bringing fictional things from the... From the the entertainment world into real life, onto real retail shelves, and one of the things that's interesting about him is that he um, he's really interested in doing it at, at very high quality. So this packaging for Sex Panther, you might want to record this. So it roars when you open it. Now that I you know I write about products and stuff for a living, like that's not cheap to do. Uh, that takes some expertise and some serious intent. And one of the things that fascinates me about Pete and what he's doing is his serious intent. His intent, even though what he's doing is like, well, you're just bringing goofy things from the movies into stores, he finds that to be really like an important and fascinating thing to do. And I'm interested in people kind of being left maybe in a state of uh, almost disorientation as they try to figure out what's real and what isn't and what that means.
1: In a way, though, that making it real helps that argument, though, because when you see the fake product sort of making fun of the real dumb ones, that sort kind of you kinda, gives you a definite conclusion. And then when you take it to the next level and you put the fake thing yes, on the you shelves. Can, you you confound like, it. You confound yeah. that conclusion. And you say, oh, you think you have it all figured out? Well, what about this? How do you explain that? As you reach into your wallet to get as money out as fast as you possibly can to buy the thing.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, and, as, and as, I, as I say, I wrote about him, but I will also admit that I immediately had to own, and I have in my refrigerator, two cans of Brondo. Pete keeps reminding me that they've expired. It's like, Pete, I'm never gonna drink them. I, I, they're, they're my, that's part of my art collection. So this noisy uh, background distraction is uh, a MakerBot, which is a 3D printer. Uh, manufacturing right now, live before your very eyes, um, a, a brand new uh, a remover installer, which is a creation of uh, one of the first artists that I um, thought of for this show, which is Sean Wolf. And there's a rack of remover installers that have been produced, and we'll continue to produce them throughout the show. Uh, we'll be producing one, I guess this one will finish before even the opening, but then we'll have some more going later during the opening. And just throughout the run of the show, we'll keep. Adding to the um, to the stock of uh, available remover installers. What what is a
1: remover installer? Okay,
0: so here's the background on this, it, and I believe that this campaign started in the nineteen in the in the 80s and ran through about 2000. Um, Sean uh, Wolf, uh, as a kind of uh, art project that was inspired by and speaking about and maybe against advertising culture in general. He invented a fiction. There was a fictional company called BeatKit, which had a fictional product called the Remover Installer, and I think you know the name Remover Installer fairly well speaks for itself. Okay. It's a useless. It, the, the functionality of the Remover Installer is never explained, but I think that the name Remover Installer speaks somewhat poetically to um, its potential functionality.
1: Yeah, but we have a lot. I mean, it just seems like it's not so, maybe out of place then, but today, it seems like there's tons of stuff called remover installer, right? When I mean, you sort of, like, like what? scroll through, I mean, just thinking about ads that you come across every day on the internet, you'll see weird, like cloud-related products.
0: Well, no, what I would say, though, is that what he's doing here is sort of commenting on, he's saying, like, if you take everything in consumer culture and boil it down to one product, what would that product do? It would remove itself and install itself. And you'd be done. And now they're and, making you know, themselves sell that product. Um, he came up with the uh, you know sl- such slogans as "Panic Now," which is his distillation of what every ad in the world f- boils down to, which is something's wrong in your life and you need to get it fixed. And um, unfortunately, you don't have the product that's now being advertised, and you should panic about that immediately and go do something and save yourself right now. And he, I think, brilliantly boiled it down to the phrase "Panic Now." And this was—it was a street art campaign and sticker campaign on, in Seattle, which is where he's based. But I, I think that if he had done—I think that what always appealed to me about it was that if you look at these prints, we've got some uh, prints of the panic now, of some Panic Now advertising, and if you even look at the remover installer itself, they're kind of actually weirdly desirable. Um, and that's what makes it turn the corner to me is that it's not just a Jeremiah ad against advertising and sort of saying like, oh, advertising, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, it's ruining our lives and it's everywhere. It's, it's sort of, it's kind of expressing that idea, but then it's expressing it with something that you're like, yeah, I, I actually want that. Um, and that led to, in the beginning, I don't think that he intended for the remover installer to ever exist as an object, but eventually, um, he made an object and it's about a two inch long, uh, you know, sort of thing. Uh, that I don't really even know how to describe. It's a lot of complicated curves and circles and, uh, uh, looks, looks like it must do something. Um, but I don't really know what. So he produced a limited number of them as a, as a small plastic object that he had packaged in real blister packs. And that were, I mean, I almost view them as sculptures, like sculptural representations of the movements dollar. So I really wanted Sean to be in this show. And I know him. Uh, I've met him over, over the years just as a sort of fan of his work and, like, someone who I think is very smart and I like to talk to about what he's thinking about. And um, I told him about this show, and I said, and listen, you know, here would be a funny thing. is like, I know that you've sort of retired this project, but would you be open to having a MakerBot 3D printer creating, you know, like some new like we could call them anniversary edition uh, remover installer replica. You know, I've suggested various things. He came up with the idea of like we'll call it the very special 20th anniversary remover installer edition. And it's, it, we had to come up with a little bit of a, a little bit of branding gymnastics to do this because he technically retired this one of the one of the characteristics of BeatKit, the fictional company. Is that it was founded in 18, uh, 1984, or whatever year it was, but always built into the date was the end date, or built into the name was the end date, which was through through 2000. It was one of the few, many companies say when they, you know, since 18 whatever. Very few companies say until a specific date, but he specified an end date for the company. Uh, So it ended in 2000, but he has decided to bring it back under a special license, saying it's a licensing agreement that his uh, new vehicle, Gross National Products, has struck. Uh, and they've evidently acquired the intellectual property to the remover-installer franchise, and they have authorized this um, uh, special edition of... So I thought it would be a nice comment if we could... Um...
1: Oh, it's more than a comment here. I live near the Breeze store, that so the... The MakerBot has a storefront now. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've walked past it yet. I haven't had. It's right yet. off of the house. Try to tomorrow. And uh, you know, and I feel very odd about watching these things make their weird little gadgets. You know, going to the weird little plastic doodads, going to like the Maker Faire and stuff, and seeing mm-hmm. these things in action. Mm-hmm. It seems like this is way more than a comment. When you had this brilliant, so it was your idea to have us watching the remover installer being made by the MakerBot. Well, I thought, I thought I'm thought, i also just fascinated with the MakerBot and what it's, I
0: mean, the MakerBot isn't just a sort of, to me, it's not just a sort of um, add-on to the show. It's actually really relevant to the show in terms of this whole idea of, of the blurry boundaries between imagination and especially product now because the MakerBot really does, and I know that this is their sort of spiel, but it's sort of true that it, um, it, it really makes it possible for you to just dream up an object, a product-like object, and just create it in your home, you don't even have to go to the mall anymore. So you no longer have to go
1: to the mall to buy your useless crap. You can just design and make your own useless crap. Yeah, but you reached into the history of, like, legendary useless crap and, like, decided to make that one on the MakerBot. Well, I can't (laughs) think of a better... I mean, I think it honors the... the, I think it honors the product. I
0: think it honors Sean's project um, and honors the MakerBot, uh, both in in, uh, different ways. And... um, you know, this is, to me, this is the ultimate, is that you can, like, because to me, the remover installer is sort of the ultimate, uh, beautifully useless object. And now um, it's available for sort of grassroots production. And the blister-packed packaging, the packaging, as you can see, is a very um, convincing in terms of its, you know, seductiveness and uh, excitement. It's a very exciting thing, and it's exciting to sit here and watch this. Sit here and watch this uh, non-functioning uh, object take shape. One of the things that uh, I did kind of want to get across, or allude to in some way, is that I think that there is an attitude that's pretty commonplace today of feeling like we are really savvy about consumer culture in a way that people were not in the past, and that... Because um, we read all those books in the 90s and the aughts, you know, that's I don't telling know, us... I that. don't know what it is. I mean, some people just say, like, well, because of the Internet, we can now cross-check, or some, you know, I don't know what the arguments are. But I like to point out to people that people have been making fun of, like, people, brands have been used as a vehicle for satirization of brands for a long time, and an example is H.G. Wells' 1909 novel, Tono Bungay, which is about... Um, it's about a a guy, but what his job is, is, um, involves selling a very dubious health tonic. And there's, they go on at some length about what a sham this product is. So, you know, H.G. Wells is not a trivial, like, this isn't some obscure guy. So this 1909 novel using products to make a, using a fictional brand to make a point in part about, um, consumer gullibility and so on. It's a hundred year old idea, at least. So I thought for this show, in addition to, you know, me writing about that and you'll read the essay, you know, me writing about that in the sort of statement about the show, I thought, well, why don't we get an actual design firm, actual design branding firm, to suggest the relaunch of Tona Bungay as a product in the 21st century? And so, what you know, it would be like maybe an energy drink. And so this is their whole process. Like, they really did it. And this is, a, this is what this firm, this is staple design uh, some people that I've known, and they, they do stuff for brands you've heard of. I don't want to get them in too much hot water or whatever right now. I don't know how I don't know how they want to publicize this, but um, uh, the, so their personal did, work. But I went to them and said, like, um, I went to them and said, look, I explained the premise and said, and and I'm I'm your client, and I want I want ton- I want to bring tono bungay back. Um, And basically, it will sit in the energy drink market. I think that that's our parallel to the health tonics of 100 years ago, Um, essentially um, uh, snake oil. Um, (laughs) But I want it to look cool and exciting and sexy and like now and like young. And we talked about, I wrote them out a sort of memo describing like the consumer that I had in mind for this kind of thing. So they did sketches, they gave me a set of uh, seven uh, design options to choose from for the can. Uh, And we settled on this version and they, I gave them the option of changing the name actually, if they, as long as the new name referenced the old, but they, I think they were right that it's better to actually just stick with the name Tono Bungay, because if you were relaunching this now, that would be very different and kind of exciting and mystery, uh, kind of exciting and mysterious and would get people's attention in it in a way. So it's Tono Bungay. They came up with this phrase secret of vigor that that might've come from the book. Um, And here's the full package design. Uh, and it's like mountain air in your veins, contains two vivid tonics, <laughs> natural and artificial secrets, one, and one modern touch. That's kind of language f- from the book, the twisted. Uh, with tonobungay you'll never be born, bored again. It improves your work, your lover, and your dinner. Health, beauty, strength, tonobunge, the art of vigor. All that stuff kind of references um, stuff that's in Wells's book. And then they did, and this is something that branding agencies routinely do, is they show you what the street campaign might look like. So here's a Tonobungay sticker. Here it is advertised on a bus. here it is as a, a street signage, and here 's the sort of a wild posting campaign where they... y-
1: you are the client here like you, you, they the had client. to come this to one, your this office one, I'm the yes, you are the client, so I'm when you 're looking at them, what did you, you know you had to give them feedback, you had to say oh, this is sucks I, you need to start from scratch. I want to tell me about the process when you are the client, wanting to see this idea like you just mentioned that they you know you would have been okay with changing the name like what what where did you want to give and where did you not want to give? And, and, and how successful? I
0: wanted them, I mean, the, only, the conversations we had about that at, were at the beginning where I said, I don't want it to read as a satire. I don't want it to look like you're making fun of something. I want it to make it look like you're trying to sell this. I want it to look sexy. I want it to look something like something that would look real on a shelf. I want you to approach this the way you would for a real client. Um, it's not a goof. you know. Uh, because that to me is more interesting. And uh, again, you know, you can draw your own conclusions about what it means to have a really realist, like, w- one might draw some conclusions about the entire energy drink market by, seeing, by looking at this and saying, hmm, well, that's interesting. You could just take some random health tonic uh, that was a satire in a 100-year-old novel and reposition it as a, something that uh, would look normal at a 7-Eleven. This uh, gentleman is named uh, Stephen M. Johnson, who uh, worked in the sort of trends department of an automaker for many years and as a sort of sideline would dream up uh, sort of futurist possibilities of products that might come into existence someday. Um, And these go back over a period of... uh, What's represented here goes back, I think, at least some of it is 20 years. So he would come up with tons and tons of these amazing ideas, and this is an easy one to explain. It is autos pre-wrecked at the factory. Um, so his theory here is that, um, is that someday uh, it will, for, for reasons having to do with you won't want to drive a shiny new car because maybe people will be more likely to break into it. So you'll just want to go ahead and buy a car that's already scratched up and dented and looks um, like something that, that you don't want to go into. Now, many of his ideas like that are sort of funny and preposterous. Not really, though. Think of, like, the ripped jeans craze. Yeah, he he actually predicted that. He wrote about that years and years before. He pre-torn clothing. He didn't predict jeans specifically, but he did this absurd series of stuff of, like, uh, why people would want to have pre-torn clothing, and it sounded um, really stupid. But, I mean, not stupid in a bad way, stupid in a funny way. But, of course, as we know, it it came true. Um, uh, uh, Distressed denim, I guess they call it.
1: What about the Nod office? Well, from 1984. So, like, okay, I'm trying to think, what was he thinking of? What was he doing in 84? Well, so this is,
0: he's got a proposal here for a desk where, as you can see, the office worker can um, just go ahead and uh, at the end of the workday, just sort of lean back, um, lie down, and pull uh, on the desk and pull a sort of cover over himself and just sleep there. Um, And I guess that that's a convenient. plausible thing for a
1: future in which we all just never stop working. Yeah, yeah. Just missing it's sort of before the desktop computer kinda of comes, so right? I mean yes, that's like that's what's yes, like absolutely. that's the only thing that seems weird about absolutely. it is that like, there's no... would have
0: to, If he were to prototype a new version of this, it would have to involve something to where would the computer go?
1: So alright, so these are these are prototypes, but uh, for you including organizing this in the show, you you felt it was important to, to sort of get sort of the behind the scenes process here?
0: Well, in the case of, I mean, I think that Stephen is a great example of someone who is kind of looking around at product culture that we live in and um, using his imagination and then looking at the world that we live in and sort of saying, like, what can we say about the world that we live in with these kind of speculative potential future products? Is this where we're headed? Um, He sometimes gets treated in the design press as being, um, you know, an, an example of where real inventions come from, from this kind of outside the box thinking. Maybe I sort of see him as being more of a person who is using this language of products to comment about America. Uh, yeah. And I should mention that I just got email from him. He can't be here tonight. He's in. Uh, he's on the West Coast. But he said he wanted to um, raise a glass to his fellow as realists. As realists. Yeah. And I think I'm going to steal that. And I'm going to start. So all of this is as realism.
1: So the idea of the fake thing is something that a lot of us you know, interested in culture, consumer culture, advertising, or just you know, entertainment culture today. But being here with you in this room when they're real things, like they're actual tactile objects right in front of our face, and, and you as the organizer putting this together, what, what do you feel putting this show together and bringing all these projects together in real space does for us to sort of better understand what these fake objects mean? For me, personally, because I'm not an artist,
0: um, but I'm sort of a writer who addresses things, like sort of offers critiques and things like this. And I actually see this as an extension of stuff that I've done that relates to um, almost a form of of criticism. I don't mean criticism like reviews, but sort of how can you express ideas about the culture. Um, And you can write essays, and you can sort of harangue about things, um, or you can try to cause to happen some sort of, you know, engaging and, in my opinion, sort of joyous occasion through objects, events, you know, real stuff that you actually have to stand there and confront. And what's great about it is that, like, take Sean's Panic Now campaign and the remover installer is it's not just a rant, like he created something beautiful out of it. He made his point and he made something beautiful and uh, meaningful and that has value. And I'm, I'm into that.
1: There's a link to the show, as real as it gets, on the TMI Playlist page. You can view some of the pieces Rob Walker talks about, and you can read his manifesto. But if you're in the New York City area, I highly recommend you experience the show in person. I trust you enjoyed listening to Rob Walker as much as I enjoyed recording him. I'm pretty sure if we donned diving suits and recorded underwater, it would still work out with him because Rob Walker is just that good. But that said, it is generally a bad idea to show up at an art gallery or a museum with a microphone. In fact, most professional radio people don't even bother trying. Because the sound is always bad. There's always lots of echo. There's always people milling about. And you, dear listener, can't even see what is being talked about. But yet, I do this all the time. I like recording in art galleries and museums. And with just one click, dear listener, you can see everything that we're talking about. Of course, there are a handful of you listening in your vehicle But all you need to do is pull over, take out your smartphone, and click away. Or you can just use your imagination. Maybe I'm just being stubborn, or maybe I like getting personal tours from artists and curators, but I don't have plans to stop doing this anytime soon, even though, like I said, every radio professional says it's a bad idea. So, let's do this, a whole entire episode at the museum.
2: My name is Kathleen Foster. I'm the Curator of American Art at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And we've just created an exhibition here around Winslow Homer's painting, The Lifeline, which is one of the most famous paintings in the American collections at the Philadelphia Museum. It's also one of Winslow Homer's best-known pictures, a painting that was a real game-changer for him, changed his reputation in 1884 when it was a huge hit in New York City.
1: This might sound odd, but Winslow Homer is actually one of my favorite artists. And when I learned that the Philadelphia Museum of Art built a whole show around his painting, The Lifeline, I decided to go to Philadelphia and see it for myself.
2: The Lifeline is one of Homer's most famous pictures, most often reproduced. So many people know this painting. But it's fundamentally a very simple and dramatic subject of two figures kind of coiled together in the center of the painting, hanging out over the ocean, over gigantic waves and rocks, and they are suspended in a basket, basically, on a, on a lifeline, a rope that hangs from one side of the picture to the other. And that's all there is. You have to figure the story out. It's a brilliant piece of storytelling, because there's just tiny, tiny clues to the rest of the, of the disaster that's unfolding here. You get a few little ship Uh, ropes and sails flapping in the upper left corner and some rocks over on the right that suggest where the beach is, but fundamentally the, the, the unfolding shipwreck is suggested to your imagination and you have to do the work. The rescue is the heart of the painting. And I think it's the reason for its emotional appeal in 1884 and why it continues to be a riveting picture now. The story is an old-fashioned one. It's a kind of knight in shining armor, saving a damsel in distress, but it's been framed in very modern language. So the Lifeline, which was brand new apparatus for the life-saving services at the time, gives this high-tech modern rescue moment um, to the audience in 1884. It would have been very modern. But the other thing that's modern about it is the hero. Who is he? And he is covered by a red scarf, so you can't see his face. And Homer has actually adjusted the painting in several ways to make the lifeguard guy sort of vanish. He he retreats slightly so that the woman moves forward and and you worry about her. She becomes the center of attention. Well, that was intriguing to me because making the lifeguard mysterious um, is a visual idea that is it focuses the picture but it also makes him anonymous which is a very modern idea as well as an old-fashioned idea it, it puts him in league with spider-man and with the Lone Ranger and Zorro in 1884 the public just loved this story and it was a classic knight in shining armor idea of the take charge man and the woman who's very passive. And that's an old, old idea that is in literature, it's in painting, but I think the 19th century picked up this story with real zeal. My personal theory is that it's a kind of conservative message that is trying to reinforce old-fashioned gender roles at a time of tremendous instability in, in modern life. Because if you think about the 1880s, that's a moment when men are actually more and more working in offices or in industries, they're not burly outdoor guys, they're sitting at a desk. And at the same time, women are not necessarily going to be these helpless flowers. They are actually seeking the vote, they're trying to earn a living, they're getting education. And so the trend is, absolutely opposite to the direction of Winslow Homer's message. Uh, His message is that, ladies, just let the guys take charge of you, you know, let them help you. Um, And the message to men is, take responsibility, you know, get out there, take care of women and children first. You know, that is, that's Homer's message. But in an interesting way, it's it's, uh, running against the tide of American culture. I noticed when I was looking at the painting that Homer had made some changes to it. Uh, and the changes are all in the direction of suppressing the hero and his identity, making him anonymous and, and polite, and bringing forward the lady so that she becomes the object of emotional attention and also of a kind of erotic attention. So. He takes the homer, the uh, hero's hand away from her shoulder. It was in the painting originally, and he scrapes it out so that he's not seen to be groping her in any way. And he also rips open the lady's dress, which was in an earlier state of the painting closed. So you get this, really, a sliver of skin above her knee. Well, of course, in the 21st century, you know, this seems like it's pretty tame. But I'm telling you, in 1884, the New York Times went crazy over this woman because it was like she was nearly naked. I mean, that's what they said. They said, her dress clings to her because she's soaking wet. It's as if she has no clothes on at all. It's so exciting. And they talked about that that flash of skin. Um, It was very suggestive, very provocative. And what's, of course, interesting to me as an art historian is that that show of skin is for the audience. It's for you and me watching the painting. It's not for the lifeguard guy, he can't see that. He's got a scarf over his face. So she is in all of her beauty and delectability being kind of presented to you on a platter. So for you can enjoy how beautiful she is. It's not, it's not about the lifeguard.
1: I recently discovered a number of Winslow Homer paintings on view at the Newark Museum of Art, part of a show called Angels and Tomboys, Girlhood in 19th Century American Art. I got a tour from curator Holly Pine Connor. Yeah, what does what, what uh, Winslow Homer teach us about being a girl and late 19th century you think?
3: Well I think this was a time when America was becoming increasingly industrialized and urban and so there was this sense of nostalgia for an earlier period in America and I think that Winslow Homer is playing into those uh, desires. In the 1870s uh, Winslow Homer turns away from certainly themes dealing with uh, the war and is looking at country life and we have a, a really beautiful oil painting from the Detroit Institute of Art, called Girl with Laurel. And in the 1870s, Winslow Homer was extolling country virtues at the same time that Louisa May Alcott was dealing with country girls uh, in her novels. And the laurel is a symbol of glory, and I would argue that he's showing us the glory of the natural world, but also the glory of this, this uh, very lovely uh, country lass.
1: One of my favorite Winslow Homer paintings, Reading by the Brook, is on display in this Newark show. I've always read it as an ode to solitude, a girl reading a book all alone in the forest. But according to Holly Pine Connor, this image is also an ode to the young female intellect. Winslow Homer was not some reactionary curmudgeon.
3: Winslow Homer paints very few portraits. He's really not interested in the individual. He's really interested in universal types. And in Reading by the Brook of 1879, he shows an anonymous young girl with her back to the viewer, immersed in this vibrant green landscape, which I would argue represents uh, the vibrancy of her intellectual pursuits and there's a sense of quiet and stillness and privacy and intimacy uh, in this beautifully painted work. And to me it always reminds me of Virginia Woolf's uh, short story called A Room of One's Own where she talks about the fact that in order to create or to be involved in intellectual pursuits you needed a room of your own where you could go and be alone and have quiet and concentrate. And I think the sense of concentration in the figure she bends over her book is uh, beautifully expressed in this incredibly powerful work. A lot of times in the 1870s when Winslow Homer shows country girls, uh, they're seen as lying on the ground, they're associated with nature, Uh, sometimes they're associated with animals. Uh, And so again, this idea of, you know, country life being close to the earth, uh, being involved with the tending of animals I think is something that is one of the themes. Uh, that Homer is engaged with. But I think that on some levels uh, works like this are slightly escapist because these country scenes were being produced for urban patrons who I think often had their childhoods in the country but then had come to the city to make their way and to make their fortunes. Uh, so, um, it, it really is on some levels a response to the brutality and the horrors of the Civil War, the sense of escape into an earlier period of American history.
1: Winslow Homer wasn't the only 19th century artist painting young girls. After the Civil War, America was obsessed with the idea of the tomboy.
3: Well, the American tomboy emerges in art after the Civil War, and a number of the advice literature uh, that was being published really recommended that there would be this uh, freer upbringing for young girls and of course in 1867-68 uh, Louisa May Alcott writes Little Women and you have Joe Marsh who is the uh, most famous 19th century tom tomboy in literature so at the same time artists are picking up on a lot of these ideas as well and J.G. Brown uh, paints this incredibly engaging uh, painting of a little Tom tomboy, swinging on a gate. Uh, The wind is in her face and in her hair. She leans forward as if she's embracing life, and she's outdoors, she's energetic, and it's very much of a contrast to the indoor angels uh, of the house.
1: Of course, many Americans were terrified at the idea of young women getting used to unbridled freedom and independence. At the end of the 19th century, women didn't even have the right to vote. There's a number of pieces in the Newark show that address these fears.
3: And then this is, this is a very humorous uh, print uh, by Charles Dana Gibson, and it sh- it's called In the Nursery, and it shows a, a, a little girl holding the reins, um, probably of her brother, um, but I think it's addressing some of the concerns that late 19th century Americans had, that uh, women were becoming uh, too uh, strong, too bold, Uh, So even though it's a very humorous print, I think it's addressing serious concerns in the late 19th century.
1: Of course, Winslow Homer saw how it was all going down, and there's an engraving in the show where he lays it all out
3: there was fears um, at this time that women were becoming too much like men, and that's really reflected in the popular press. But it's dealing more with women rather than young girls. Uh, I think really the idea is that young girls were allowed often to have a freer, more exuberant kind of childhood, but when they, became, when, when they hit puberty, then everything changed. And that's really reflected here in this woodcut by Winslow Homer, who's such a brilliant, Commenter on social conditions in America, and so here you have the three tom tomboys who are their hair is streaming out. The, you can see their their ankles, their feet, and then this group is contrasted to the older girls who have their hair bound. Uh, they're in a much more proper uh, uh, erect stance. They're much more reserved. So I think he's saying that that these. Girls have a much more um, free and athletic life than than what will happen to them when they grow up. And their skirts are lengthened. Girls um, at puberty were put into corsets and their whole life really changed. Frequently their hair was bound up tightly to their head. Here they have braids, but um, their whole life, the expectation uh, for a young girl versus an older girl were very different.
1: Angels and Tomboy's Girlhood in Nineteenth-Century Art is currently on display at the Newark Museum of Art. This episode of Too Much Information is called At The Museum. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen. You can find links to all of the shows we just featured on the TMI playlist page. And that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that at WFMU.org.